a real conversation and some hard truths. Gangs, drugs, and guns, giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. Hey everybody, welcome back. Nathan Rome is with you. Today, we are going to be talking about, well, I guess our guests, two industries that he's in, uh, leadership and personal growth with some topics on security. For that, I have He Nguyen here. He is a former member of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police with 14 years of experience in patrol, close protection, counterterrorism, and undercover operations. Now he's the Director of Protective Services for a large Canadian university and an award-winning leadership coach in which he shows people how to successfully lead teams and be recognized for their work. So welcome, he. Thanks a lot, Nathan. I'm super happy to be here. I'm glad to have you on. Um, you know what? I see a lot of your posts on LinkedIn. Yeah. That's kind of where I first saw you. Uh, and then you kind of reached out and we just kind of connected and um, now we're here. So I'm glad to have you on and uh, get to some of these big topics because, well, leadership is definitely something that uh, I would say is lacking in a lot of aspects in life nowadays. So uh, hopefully you can school some people on this <laughs> and uh, we'll get into that. But first, maybe we'll start with just talking about you and uh, how you got into kind of the security and law enforcement world. If, <laughs> if you could kind of start us at the beginning, just run us through you know, where you're from and a bit about you. Yeah, absolutely. So I, um, I'm a Montreal guy. So I grew up in Montreal um, from a, a French-Canadian mom and a Vietnamese dad who, uh, who is a Vietnam War veteran who immigrated here after the war. And so anyways, grew up in Montreal. I was absolutely not the kid that, would, that had been dreaming about policing and uh, at all uh, growing up. I had very little exposure to law enforcement uh, growing up, but I, I always had a real interest in um, counterterrorism, all of that jazz, you know, and, and I grew up in the 80s, 90s, so of course influenced by die hard yeah. and, and uh, <laughs> you know lethal weapon and all these guys like uh, those were the kind of the heroes of when i was a kid but um yeah what really pushed me into law enforcement was uh 911 mm. so essentially you know uh during those days i was i was a software salesman that's what i was doing okay <laughs> and i had zero exposure to law enforcement but then 9-11 happened, and to, to be honest, I was completely, completely shocked. Um, and that's what literally pushed me off the sidelines because I was thinking there is no way we can let this happen in our own country. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the only thing I knew about counterterrorism at the time was that it was the RCMP. So I was like, well, all right, here we go. So I literally not knowing what the heck I was getting my, myself into. I walked into a recruiting office um, in, what, what was it? yeah, it was a couple of weeks after 9-11 and walked into a recruiting office in Montreal for the RCMP. And there's this grizzled old sergeant in there. And he's like, uh, you know, th there must have been, I don't know, probably 40 or 50 applicants in the room Wow. 
and this uh, this sergeant, you know, he's walking around and he's just like, you know, out of all of you in this room, statistically, there may be one guy that graduates from the academy, and uh, you know, just that 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 old military mentality mm-hmm. or something, and, and it was just. As soon as this guy said that, I was like, yep, that's for me. That's totally <laughs> for me. And so, so yeah, I, uh, I applied absolutely not expecting to be selected because I had no background. I, mm-hmm. you know, it's just, I was super interested. I wanted in, but I had zero background experience or anything like that. And so left for the academy and holy cow, fell in love with it. I mean, Spent six months driving like a maniac, shooting guns, fighting. <laughs> yeah. that type of stuff. I mean, it was like Disney World. I loved it. So uh, I totally got hooked. Because I, I had no idea of the, the whole uh, uniform policing that, that the RCMP does. And, and as soon as I had the uniform on and I was you know, doing patrols and you know, my first few years, uh, I was deployed in Langley, BC, which is close to Vancouver. And it was just a blast. It was so good. And uh, I loved it. I loved the high-speed chases and the fights and the, you know, <laughs> learning how to investigate. Because really, that's in the RCMP anyways. It's kind of the baby steps of policing. You, you, yeah. you know, you investigate the stolen bike file and the, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, the, the B&E file. And, and so you, you, you try all of these little baby steps in investigations and it's phenomenal phenomenal so the, i i loved it that's how i that's literally how i got in did um did you apply to any other places so cuz like the obviously mounties aren't the uh municipal police in quebec uh you have a bunch of different services so what made you go straight to the rcmp and and did you apply anywhere else no i that's the only place i applied okay. cuz my goal from the start was counterterrorism. Yeah. And so as soon as, you know, I applied and, you know, it took, it took a long time. It took almost two years mm. for them to get back to me and say, you're hired, you're going to the academy. So, um, but that's the only place I had applied and uh, I got in. Wow. And then, uh, yeah, uh, spent, uh, spent about four years on the road uh, doing the uniform policing thing. I did a, Quite a bit of plain clothes as well. Uh, back in those days, you know, doing uh, street crime things, uh, uh, you know, low-level drug enforcement, uh, yeah. car theft rings, that type of stuff. So had a great time. And then an opportunity came up for me to transfer to Ottawa. So uh, I was approached because they knew I was from back east. So they said, hey, w- would you be interested in joining the prime minister's protective detail. And I had no idea what that was. So I was like, well, mm, all right. So once again, kind of a leap of faith kind of thing. And I just went, okay. At the time we had kids. We had started having kids. And so, you know, they were growing up farther away from their their grandparents, their cousins. And, and, uh, you know, there was kind of a, a family pressure to kind of get closer because the kids didn't know their cousins and so on. So, so we, took, uh, we took the opportunity. We moved to Ottawa. And uh, <clears throat> sorry, I did some close protection 
um, for, for four years for uh, Stephen Harper at the time. Okay. And Governor General uh, Mikel Jean. So I, I did a lot of close protection here in the country, but traveled extensively. So went to Europe, went to Africa and Asia and all over the place. Uh, sometimes it was awesome. Yeah. Sometimes it was boring as heck because, you know, you're, you have to guard a door in a hotel room in Peru or something and you don't get to see Peru. You just get to see a hallway <laughs> while you're there, you know? So, <clears throat> so sometimes it's, uh, it, it was fantastic though, like tons of absolutely amazing experiences from, from working overseas. I see. Uh, also, a lot of people don't realize, and this is something I tell people now, because I did a couple of years with the Mounties before going to the Edmonton police. Uh, there's so many jobs that, you know, you could be there for like five, 10, maybe longer. And all of a sudden you'll just hear about a job one day and you're like, I didn't even know that existed. Yep. Like it's, it's, it's a very region specific, right? Like there's a lot of programs on the Great Lakes that, if you're out here in the prairies, you're not really looking at like, you know, anything in a boat. <laughs> not, not, there's not much going on here uh, with regard to that. But then, you know, on the coast, it's like all different programs and stuff. So it's, it's pretty cool. Yep. Like the, the range of stuff you can get into. So, yeah, really. Yeah. And, and so after my years in close protection, uh, well, I should backtrack here. During my years in close protection, what I did is, I was really pushing hard to get into counterterrorism. So in the RCMP, that team is called INSET. It's the Integrated National, National Security Enforcement Team. So INSET. And so it's a combination of the OPP, the RCMP, um, municipal police forces, um, intelligence services, et cetera, borders, uh, border services. Uh, it's, it's an integrated team. And we work counterterrorism files. And so I pushed really hard and eventually was able to get in. So I was super happy. Uh, and then for uh, six years, really worked my tail off uh, in there. And most of what I, I was doing in, in, uh, in counterterrorism was source handling, uh, agent handling. Very that cool. Type of stuff. So for, for those listeners who don't know exactly what that is, is... We would go out, <clears throat> we would have very specific uh, training and skill set, and we would go out and essentially you make friends with all sorts of people that may or may not be in contact with the bad people that you're, you're investigating. And so you're convincing these people to either give you information and or to uh, actually take action on your behalf. Mm. So for example, I could convince Nathan to take a very specific package to a very specific residence and leave that package, you know, on the on the dining table or something. So uh, those are those uh, are most of the things I was doing um, uh, in counterterrorism. Very cool. Yeah, you know what? Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask maybe just real briefly to not throw you on sidetrack, but uh, what was it like doing the close protection? Uh, if we could talk a little bit more on that. Um, yeah, for sure. Even Harper yeah. stuff. Because I imagine that's going to play into maybe some of the leadership conversation we have. But mm. um, yeah, when you're doing a lot of the traveling, you, you said you just started having a family. Like, was that uh, kind of hard on the home life? Uh, yes. It's uh, 
fortunately, it's there's very little surprise travel or any at all. Oh, okay. You always know several weeks ahead of time that you're leaving. Thing is, sometimes you're gone for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, because, for example, if the governor general travels to uh, China, let's say, then the, the Department of Foreign Affairs, they, they've organized this thing like nine months ahead of time, right? They, yeah. It's organized way ahead of time. But a couple of weeks prior to the governor general arriving in China, there's going to be an advanced team that goes. So if you're lucky, <laughs> you get to go on the advanced team. So you're on the team, you're heading out, and then you'll spend maybe a week, 10 days prior to the VIP arrival, making sure you're, you're, you're just planning the trip, you're, you're scouting the venues, you're meeting with local law enforcement, local uh, intelligence services, that type of stuff, uh, liaising with all these people, and, and you're organizing everything. And so okay. once the VIP lands, then you're, you're essentially guiding them through the whole circuit. Yeah. Um, and so if, for example, the governor general would stay at locations for a week, two weeks, so you'd be there a week in advance, maybe 10 days in advance, and then you're there for the whole trip after, right? So you can be gone for three weeks, a little bit more than three weeks sometimes. Oh, wow. And then um, for the prime minister, it's very different because the prime minister travels, it, the, the, all of his destinations are very short term. You know, he might spend an afternoon in Paris and then, but then he'll go and have a couple of meetings in Belgium and then hop onto the plane again and maybe go to Germany or whatever. So, so you might be away for a week with the prime minister, but you're never in the same spot for more than half a day, a day sometimes. Um, there was one trip where we were there for three, four days, I think, which was the longest I was on uh, in one single place. And it was the G8 summit. Mm. So it was the G8 summit in um, in Rome at the time, which was amazing. Yeah, I imagine that wouldn't be the worst place to go. Do you actually get to go out and see anything? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh good. Tons, tons. <laughs> yeah, we got to because I was protecting a, a, a specific person at the time. And that person went on multiple, multiple tours of Rome. So I got to see so many cool things yeah, yeah you're like hey can you uh throw in a few tours like these people you know prime minister or somebody wants to go tour as well <laughs> at least get us yeah. out yeah oh yeah and yeah amazing stories from from the trip to rome just really really cool stuff so uh so yeah you did uh 14 years with the rcmp yep and what made you transition into is it like was it directly into the security that you're doing now nope so so essentially um, after my six years in counterterrorism, I was completely burnt out. And police officers listening to this post mm-hmm. or this this podcast will totally understand what when I mean I was police burnt out. Yeah, like it's I was burnt to a crisp. And uh, because at the time, what had happened is we were working a massive, massive, massive file, which we'd been running for two and a half years or something working 16 hour days, like continuous, like seven days a week. Wow. It was insane. Like a, 
like a really, really, really big file. And, um, and as, you know, as per the policing world, you're, you're always at like 50% capacity on, on <laughs> any given day. So you're always working like crazy. And then as we were, we made the arrests and we, we wrapped up this investigation, there was the attack on Parliament Hill. So, mm-hmm. um, so instead of being able to kind of wind down and kind of catch our breath, there was the attack on Parliament Hill. And so that ramped up another absolutely gigantic investigation. And so again, we were running 18 hour days for weeks on end. And it was, it was insanity. So by the end of that, I was exhausted, completely, completely exhausted. And, and so, sorry, I chose to, to literally, uh, to, to leave the RCMP and to just go do something else. Crazily enough, I decided to start my own business. Yeah. So I don't know how I was thinking that that was be, would be more relaxing uh, because it wasn't, but uh, I started my own business and I wanted to do, I think I really needed to experience something completely different than, than the, the, you know, the world of policing and, uh, as as a frontline police officer, um, I I really connected with uh, children. I really, you know, I saw the plight of kids um, uh, all over. So I decided to start a business at the time that was dedicated to helping kids with learning disabilities. And so I, I ran that business for four years. Um, invented all sorts of cool stuff for that business. It was awesome. Uh, and that's that's really where um, I really connected with leadership, because throughout my career in policing, I, I had you know the privilege of working with absolutely amazing people. Mm. Uh, but the the one reality that's again, people listening to this are going to smile, but you know the expression uh, a supervisor makes it rain or shine yeah. on a team. And, and that is so true because, uh, you know, I have so many examples of, you know, I'm working on a team in the RCMP and everything's just phenomenal, like best place in the world to be at. And then our boss gets promoted, somebody else takes the spot and it just turns to pure hell. Like yeah. people quit, people move to other departments, like literally because of a supervisor. And so that's kind of where I got my exposure to, you know, how important leadership is and, and just having basic skills to manage a team. So when I got into business, I got really, really obsessive about, you know, learning as much as I could. So I took seminars and um, certifications and I read books and you know, podcast, podcast, podcast. And it was just yeah, uh, 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 like a, a real uh, immersion in leadership for years is what, that's what I did because I wanted to run my team in my business yeah. the best way that I could. And I got them into leadership as well and so on. And, and it really paid off. Like there's no question about that. It totally paid off. Well, you you be very invested, right? Because it, especially when it's your own business, like yep. you want to see it succeed. So, if you're a person who cares, then yeah, you're gonna work harder and and try and do better by your people. And 
mean, especially when you leave kind of the bureaucracy of like paramilitary organization and, and the very rigid, like top-down structure, it gives you a lot of freedom to now kind of be your own person and, uh, you know, see what traits you can, you, you are good at and, and what you're not good at and what kind of character you can actually be. So yeah, I, I totally get what you're saying with that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you, you when you, you become responsible for people, you realize how much, um, you have to invest in people for them to grow. Um, mm-hmm. and, and you, but you need a skill set. Like you can't really improvise this stuff. Well, you could, but you're going to stumble often, right? And so, um, so yeah. So I got really, really involved in that, and then my business eventually kind of outgrew me um, in the sense that I, I'm just a cop, right? And and I had a business that was helping kids with. Uh, eventually, you know, my business grew to help kids with autism and and. and all sorts of uh, mental health issues. And it was way beyond what I could understand or okay. have an impact in my own business. So my, my business is eventually was taken over by social workers who, who really drove the business. It's still running today, still helping hundreds and hundreds of kids every year, which is great. Um, but then I, you know, I had kind of a, a professional decision to make. I was like, well, and do I stay in business? Do I start a new business? Or, you know, do I go back to my initial love, you know, law enforcement, security, that type of stuff? So I kind of poked around and ended up getting a job in corporate security, um, literally at a at a back backyard bar- barbecue. Like, okay. <laughs> having a having a beer with a couple of guys. And one of the guys like, hey, uh, are you looking for a job? I'm like, uh, Sure. Okay. And he's like, yeah, I got something for you. I'm like, perfect. So hopped into uh, corporate security. And then eventually, uh, I actually, it was a buddy of mine in the RCMP reached out and said, hey, there's a position, a director position at a local university. Why don't you throw your hat in the, in the ring? Yeah. And I'm like, all right. And again, not knowing what I was getting myself into, threw my hat in the ring not expecting at all to get it. And I got it. I got the position. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, now I've been managing a team of about 65 people now for okay. for the, the past uh, almost three years. So, yeah, it's been almost three years of uh, really doing a lot of leadership coaching, a lot of coaching with, with this team, putting this team back on its feet and, and really performing. So it's been, uh, it's been a, an incredible journey. Very cool. Well, maybe because um, we're kind of going to focus on leadership and some of the security aspects. Sure. Maybe we'll just yeah. kind of start with the security stuff since we're already in that realm. Um, but yeah, so I wanted to ask just, do you see any kind of trends in security right now? And, uh, uh, and I'll come back to asking that again, just kind of flesh this out a bit. But um, with security, uh, what I see here, like in the West, um, we get a lot of like hands-off approach and a lot of people are kind of like, let the police deal with it. Like just be a professional set of eyes, uh, be a good reporter. Um, but you know, what's kind of, what's your take on where the security industry is going when we're talking about private security or, um, out here we have peace officers on, on, uh, our university campus. 
So they have like a limited range of use of force tools that they can use. But um, yeah, it, it, we got kind of a mishmash of like, some people have a baton, some people have a baton and OC spray, and then it, it just kind of goes up and up. But a lot of it I find is can be hands off for the most part. And they try to defer it to police to deal with. But what's your experience with that? And, and where's this kind of coming from? Or where's it going to? That's such a good question. I mean, it's such a giant topic in our industry right now. And so, you know, all I, all I can tell you is, is from my perspective, of course. And, and so the, the, in, the current security industry is just to simplify it. It's a little bit more complicated than that, but just to simplify it, really, there's kind of two, two areas, right? You have the mega security corporations, you know, okay. the, the yep. allied uh, G4S type yeah. uh, security mega corporations, right? They're giant. And they're kind of the retail version of security where essentially your, your basic ability is the ability to breathe. You know, mm-hmm. if you can stand someplace, uh, you, you barely have a uniform and, you know, you, you cost almost nothing, right? So it's the, the really value village of, of policing or security, I should say. So there's that end of security which is the, the, the most widely used security. Because most, most organizations, whether you're a, you're a liquor store or you're a, a, a bank or whatever, security is kind of a thorn in your side. It's, not, it's absolutely not your main business. Uh, your, your, your core activity is serving a client, you know, a service or selling products or whatever. Security is an expense. Yeah. It's necessary. But it's like insurance. You don't want to pay for insurance, but you kind of have to. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and security is the same thing. So most organizations, the wide, you know, the vast majority of organizations, they're going to spend as little as possible on security. So they're going to go for a G4S or an Allied or whatever that, <clears throat> you know, obviously skill sets vary within, within even these organizations, but generally, they're very, you know, it's very low yeah. expectation, low performance, right? And then you have like these boutique security, like these little specialized shops um, that offer super high-end stuff, right? And so they are on the complete opposite spectrum here in security where um, they'll have highly, highly trained guards that have Everything from, you know, they're all jujitsu trained, let's say, and um, they have de-escalation training and regular updates on their training and first aid and CPR and advanced CPR with oxygen and mm. all of that stuff, right? So, so they can have really, really high-end stuff um, and uh, they have investigative capabilities and, and all of that jazz. They're nearly police officers, mm. right? It, they're, they're almost cops, but and I'm speaking for Canada here, where all security guards are do not carry firearms. But in other countries, like in the U.S., they they will be armed with firearms. But um, uh, in Canada, in very rare occurrences, will you have a security guard with uh, a firearm? So there's you know if they're carrying money, for example, they can be armed, or if they're working for the Royal Canadian Mint, 
for example, mm-hmm. which is a, a giant facility that's filled with gold and silver, well, then these people are all carrying weapons in there. But other than that, uh, you know, usually security outfits don't have weapons uh, or firearms, I should say. So, so there's kind of these two extremes, right, in the industry. And when it comes to the hands-off part, mm-hmm. right, you were saying, eh, you know, a lot of guards are hands-off. It's, it really comes down to insurance and it comes down to liability. And most organization, let's say you're running a whatever, uh, a, a business that manufactures furniture and you've got a couple of security guards walking around, you don't want any liability, you know, having a security guard punching some, some guy in the face or something, right? Yeah. So they have very, these corporations have very clear hands-off policies, like do your best to de-escalate a person or have that person leave our premise. If they don't call the police kind of thing, right? Yeah. That's kind of what I figured it comes down to. It's end of the day, I guess it's about money and liability, right? Like I don't want to have to pay someone if, even if they're doing something illegal on my property and I push them and they slip on ice, am I going to be paying a million dollars to this person for whatever reason? So yeah, I I guess it all comes back to that. (laughs) Yeah, a hundred percent. And I think that if we're talking about the future of where all of this is going, the way I see it is that the large mega corporations of this world, they are going to be replacing their, you know, the bottom end security guard with tech. Mm, okay. It's to me, that is completely inevitable, right? Yeah. Why pay somebody to just sit and look out the window when you can have cameras with AI or drones or whatever that's coming out, right? It's it just makes so much more sense from a from a, a financial standpoint. So I think that that's one of the things that we're going to see over the next, you know, five, 10 years probably is a slow erosion of the 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 very, very basic security guard, you know, you know, basically uh um the the, the minimal activity is all going to be covered by uh tech is is my my opinion. And then I think that the, the specialized security shops are going to start getting more and more and more business mm-hmm. because whether you're in the U S whether you're in Canada or Europe, Australia, wherever violent crime is going up and up and up and up. And it just, it's, it, it's not stopping and it won't stop. So I think that Specialized security is going to start making a lot more sense over time. Um, I, I can see that the security industry will will rally, will organize. Um, there's going to be a lot better standards, like national standards, provincial standards okay. regarding security. Because there is none of that right now. There's very little control over security and you know what training you need. And right now, I mean, getting a, a security guard license is is a joke, right? And so, um, to to be able to uh, respond to what's happening on the market, I think that the the more specialized uh, organizations are going to be getting a lot more business over time. And then, what you're going to see is the big organizations 
are going to start specializing. Um, I, I, I think the days of just the, the discount security guard, those days are numbered. Like these, yeah. those are meant to disappear within the next five, 10 years is, is what I think. Well, yeah. And I mean, like for the car, co- like cameras and, and other things, even drones, they've gone down a lot in price. But if I could replace one person with, you know, like five or six cameras, the cameras never turn off. They don't need a break. They are pretty good at capturing as much as a witness. Uh, humans as witnesses um, are not that great. <laughs> like when people call the police, they'll say, you know, I saw this person run off and they had a red jacket. And then you find the person and they have a blue jacket. It's like people are actually really bad once they get stressed out. Yep. They start seeing all kinds of things and, and saying the opposite of what's going on. Um, but yeah, that's like, and, and not to get into like a dystopian future type uh, thing, but I do, I, I can kind of see where it's like police are struggling to recruit so many people. Um, they can't be at every single call. So it's like, how do, well, I don't know, the common person can't hire a security guard, to be expensive. But when you talk about like a lot of these places like malls or big shopping centers or um, you know industrial areas, they'll have security guard driving around and just watching a bunch of properties. But maybe they have to get into more of that security aspect, like hiring more people. And if that includes like more of these specialized um, security type people, uh, I, I could see that being kind of the way of the future. Police can't be everywhere nope. at all times, especially when certain things like like a break and enter or whatever. You know, maybe that takes like two days for somebody to get to you. Um, so people start taking security a little more seriously. And you bring up a really good point when you say like people, d- I guess, don't want to pay for it till they really need it, and then they're like, okay, <laughs> it was good that I had that. But I think. Um, the general attitude in Canada, we're very laid back and we just think like nothing ever, nothing bad ever happens. And then we get like, you know, the one big thing you were mentioning, um, the attack on Parliament Hill. Um, just here recently in Edmonton, we had the guy running through City Hall and not to knock security, I, like especially the one here in Edmonton, I really don't know what happened at that one. I know what everybody else sees on the news. <laughs> and um, but when those things happen, I think people go, okay, what, or at least they should be going, what the hell are we missing here? Like, how did this happen? And we need to implement change. So maybe you start going a little more hard line on the security and, and putting your money up front rather than, you know, kind of paying uh, on the back end of things. So, yeah, a hundred percent. I couldn't agree more. And <clears throat> I think that you know, if we're talking about tech and the future of security, I think that we're going to see new, new positions open up, new types of jobs be created, right? Because if you've, you know, let's say in five, 10 years from now, which is more than reasonable to think it's going to happen, but there's, you're going to see a ton of automation, a ton of AI. Uh, so, you know, the job of dispatchers, for example, or the, the people that work these control centers, these OCCs of the world, mm-hmm. um, their, their skill set is essentially going to change. I think we're going to see not only comms people, but you're going to see tech operators like drone operators and stuff like that starting to show up in these environments 
because now you're going to need people to maintain the tech or to interpret what the tech is saying to the operator to say, hey, because you know we humans have a very limited set of senses, right? Yeah. But you know, drones can be equipped with infrared, ultraviolet, like super yeah. equipped with sound and networked in with microphones. And like it's it can be a whole network of tech, right? That monitors an area. And so you're, go- you're going to see, I think, a lot of different positions, tech positions opening up in these in, in the security world where you know your 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 basic security guard is going to disappear and uh you're going to have a lot more you know uh, tech operators that are, that are going to start showing up in the security world i think and policing same thing same thing in policing well you know what even in policing we've seen some transition away from police responding to certain calls and now either they are well using different type of services to show up yep or we're doing things over the phone and people can upload their statements or documents to us, right? So as long as they come up with like a secure enough platform to do that, um, yeah, we kind of see our function change with the times. So yeah. I guess it's not really something to fight. It's just something like, hey, get some new skills, get educated, do all these different things and, and keep up with the times. Um, so on the security front, uh, I want to just specifically kind of hone in on universities too. Uh, with universities, like they're pretty open uh, and, and free flowing and stuff. Very. Is there ever when, when when we see like a lot of the stuff in the states? I mean, they got shootings all the time. Yep. And whatever else goes on down there, but you know they have a lot of big events. We don't have that up here as much. Uh, do you do you think is there a specific reason why? And and do you as uh, a director like how often do you hear about? Maybe just like vague threats, like, and then you do your assessments and everything else mm-hmm. if it's credible. But is it is it like as little as people think, or is it more than people think? So just kind of wondering, like, what's the percentages out yeah. there? Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's a great question. Um, so, yeah, in general, in Canada, there's there's very little threats to universities or colleges in general. Um, there's um, why that is, I mean, I think it's a society thing. You know, in general, there's a lot less shootings, a lot less firearms stuff yeah. in in Canada than there is in the U.S. It will always be like that. I don't think we'll ever catch up the U.S. Uh, on on that front, uh, just because of who we are as as a nation, but also just because of access, right? Um, uh, access to, to firearms is a, a little bit, not a lot, but a little bit different in Canada. And and it's a culture thing, right? In the US, it's they're very gun oriented. Mm-hmm. They're um uh it's it's part of the media, it's part of the culture, it's part of everything, firearms, right? Uh, and in, in Canada it isn't. That said, campuses are enormous, right? You 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 can imagine a campus as being like a small city. So the campus I work on currently has just above 50,000 people mm-hmm. going in and out of that place. It's like a small city. So as you can imagine, uh, there are you know cases of me- mental health issues, 
you know, depression, that type of stuff. So are there threats to campuses at large? Sure, they are. Um, are they super credible or do they happen often? Not very much, um, but they happen. They get investigated. Um, university campuses will always liaise with the local police force, you know, usually the, the municipal police force. Mm-hmm. And uh, they work pretty hand in hand um, because campuses end up being a, a big catchment inside a, a municipality, right? So. Um, whether it's a place where a lot of vehicles get stolen or dumped or yeah. <laughs> uh, a lot of drugs gets get uh, sold or or not. But, you know, so there's a lot going on on campuses. And so usually municipal forces are working hand in hand with the university security department, whatever they're called. Um, and um, so there are threats. It happens. Um, but most campuses... In, in Canada, what, what they're seeing is mostly um, is mental health calls. Like it's okay. a lot, a lot, a lot of mental health calls. And, and security departments on campuses at large, like worldwide, they generally uh, deal with medicals. Like it's first aid stuff. Um, okay. You know, the, the football player smashed his head or the, the hockey player uh, uh, busted a knee or, or whatever, right? So you, that the staff get called to a lot of first aid calls, uh, but they do investigate, you know, having have to investigate like sexual assaults, assaults, thefts, lots of thefts on campuses, right? Mm-hmm. Cell phones, laptops, that type of stuff, lots of electronics getting stolen. And, um, and the, what's a different dynamic that people kind of ignore from university campuses is most university campuses are research centers, right? That's okay, yeah. most of the research throughout our country, throughout the, the whole country is done on university campuses. They have whole sections that are entire buildings that are research labs, you know, portals to the future and whatever, you know? Yeah. Yeah. They'll be connected to a hospital or dark matter and whatever it is they're researching. Yeah. And, and so there's millions and millions and millions of dollars in in research uh, that's occurring like hundreds of millions of dollars in research every year on university campuses. So securing the data, securing the, the labs, a lot of labs will have highly toxic materials in there, nuclear material, that type of stuff. And so you need to be securing these, these places properly with mm. policies and, and physical measures and, and physical patrols and stuff like that. So yeah, yeah, it's important. Um, just uh, want to make sure we get enough time on our second topic. So maybe we'll do a hard pivot just to that. Sure. Talking about the leadership side of things. So with a, I mean, we already kind of covered uh, a bit of your influence and how you got into that world. One thing I am wondering though is, um, do you have any particular mentors or people that, uh, as you were kind of making that transition into the leadership realm, like you said, you listen to a lot of podcasts. That's something that I was kind of uh, took on and I was listening to podcasts and started doing this. Uh, anybody in particular that really influences you or you, you, know, you read more than others? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, for sure. My Bible is Extreme Ownership mm. by Jocko Willink. So Jocko is, is a huge inspiration to me. 
you know, um, Dave Goggins, uh, huge inspiration. It's not so much in, well, he's into kind of personal leadership. Um, but yeah, the, these people really, really influenced me. Um, uh, Simon Sinek is uh, fantastic with uh, his content, but there's just, there's so many. Um, you know, if if I could recommend a couple of books, I mean, for sure, Extreme Ownership. Um, there's a book called The Speed of Trust as well, which is phenomenal, and it's written by uh, Stephen Covey, but the son, not the father, because uh, the father is dead. <laughs> but um, the uh, the the speed of trust, for example, phenomenal, phenomenal book. There's a, a book on that's called Tribal Leadership, uh, which is an absolute must if you're in into leading teams. You need to get yourself Tribal Leadership. Can't remember the name of the author now, uh, but again, really, really good. And and there's also a book like. Uh, good to great, and uh, all of these things are, all of these books are just must-haves if you're in, if you're in leadership for sure. Yeah, I think most people recognize a few of those names. At least uh, most of the listeners that I kind of capture, <laughs> they'll they'll know Jocko and Dave Goggins. Um, with with yours with yourself and your your leadership style, like how would you kind of describe your leadership style and? and um, is there anything that you're kind of aspiring to be or things that you think you could do better? Yeah, 100%. I mean, if, if I was going to boil down my leadership style to one sentence, I would say, you get what you tolerate. Mm. That's it. You know, you get what you tolerate and you go from there. But um, uh, my leadership style is very, very aligned with uh, extreme ownership, uh, Jocko Willing, that type of stuff where, you know, it's accountability is extremely important. Uh, building trust is extremely important and so on. But my opinion in, in the world of leadership and in, in the world in general, I think that we've over the past few years, maybe a decade, we've really handled people with kids gloves. Yes. You know, everything is needs to be padded and you know you can't really talk about the subject you know you have to kind of go around and negotiate and and I disagree with that because we've created by doing that we've created a whole generation of employees who can't take criticism yes. who can't have a conversation a, 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 a whole generation of employees who you know when they become leaders they also cannot have a, a, a discussion with a problematic employee because they don't know how to handle this. They, they're not emotionally capable of handling these things and they don't have the skill set either, right? Well, I always make a distinction of, I always say, they become the managers. Leaders is a different, uh, you know. Oh, yeah. yeah <laughs> so the, they'll become the, the managers. Being a leader while you're a manager is like, okay, now you're really getting what you're supposed to. But yeah, no, sorry. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, 100%. And, and so, you know, if we're talking about my style is I'm very direct, I'm very professional, but I'm, you know, firm, but, you know, fair. And uh, I, that's what I teach. That's, that's literally what I show my own team. Mm -hmm. The team that I'm managing now, 
you know, I teach all of my frontline supervisors, all of my mid-range and, you know, even my upper executives, I show them how to be direct and to address issues and to not left, leave things lingering, but by using very specific skills, by using, using techniques that help you get to the result you want. And there's a lot of psychology that backs this up. Um, but it's just in this day and age, if you want to get things done in a reasonable amount of time mm -hmm. without spending a ton of money, you need to have skills. You, you can't just fumble your way through a leadership position. You, you need to know what you're doing. Well, how, how do you have those hard conversations though? Like, so, and I know a lot of people are super, uh, I'll say afraid, but also like people just don't like the confrontation, right? Yep. They don't want to go into that. And I think genuinely some people are like, you know, they just feel bad telling someone, hey, you suck at this job, <laughs> like, yeah. you know, or you need to do better. Yep. So how do you have those conversations with somebody? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think, you know, the, the best tool uh, I think anybody can have is uh, something that's, that's been promoted a lot by, uh, by Simon Sinek, which is the, um, a technique called BFI, so Bravo Fox India. And so the B stands for behavior, F stands for feelings, and I stands for impact. And there's various iterations of this model in, by other leadership coaches. But just to go over really quickly, mm -hmm. it's, it's a method that you use that really allows you to bring a, a topic up with an employee, a problematic employee, for example. It could be your spouse. It could be your child too. BFI works in any scenario, but essentially what you do is first you acknowledge the behavior. All right. So let's say, for example, Nathan, you sent me, uh, like I'm your supervisor and you sent me a super rude email. Let's say that's the scenario. I could acknowledge the, the behavior. I could say, Nathan, I've just received your email. In your email, <clears throat> I, I can see that you know you're 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 saying that I'm an f and this and f and that, and <laughs> there's no f and way you're gonna do this and blah blah blah. I would never put that in writing, by the way. <laughs> 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 Might say it somebody, but no, I wouldn't put it in writing. <laughs> <laughs> so. So let's, so I acknowledge your behavior, right? Yes. I'm not accusing you of anything. I'm not, I'm just saying this is what happened. This is what I observed, right? Then I, I switch into feelings. So I, I, I could say, I have to, and in this section, it's all about saying how you feel genuinely. You don't, you don't improvise here. So genuinely, I could say, Nathan, we've always had a great relationship. I don't understand why you sent this to me, and it's it really hurt me. Like it's uh, I'm I'm upset, but I'm I'm disappointed. I'm I'm hurt by what you said about uh, well about me. Let's say in your email, blah blah blah. This is how it made me feel, right? A B C D, and then you finish with impact, and you always start the that section by saying, "I am afraid." And then you speak about impact. Mm -hmm. I'm afraid that if you keep 
sending me emails like this, Nathan, it's going to completely destroy the trust that we have between between each other. Our capacity to work is is not going to, it's going to be negated. We're not going to be able to do anything. And if you keep doing that, I'm going to have to intervene as your supervisor because this is completely unprofessional. And I'm going to need to, you know, impose some penalties here. Yeah. Uh, because because of this. And then you finish the technique by simply you stop talking and you just look at the person in the eye and you do, do nothing. So essentially what you've done from a psychological point of view is you've made the other person, first you didn't accuse them, but you make the other person realize how their actions made you feel, which most leaders never do. Mm-hmm. Right, you never know how your actions make other people feel, but now this technique it does that for one and for two. It clearly shows you, without any accusations, it shows you this is what's going to happen if you keep doing this. Yeah, and and so what happens? Ninety nine percent of the people never intend to hurt other people's feelings. They vent. They you know, they they want to, they're frustrated about something, but they never intend to hurt you inside your heart. Like they never, that's never the intention or rarely it is it. And so, and I've used this technique many, many times. What happens is the person kind of reflects for a few seconds and they're like, I'm really sorry. Yes. I, that's absolutely what, not what I intended to say or I, I didn't intend to hurt you. I just needed to get out that I was super pissed off about whatever. And so, okay, all right, now we're talking, right? Yeah. And so, but now you're just, you just let the other person go, right? And um, I, I, I remember one of the first times I used BFI with one of my employees, um, he actually came back. Like we finished the conversation. He apologized. It was like, Okay, yeah, you know, I'm not going to do that again. I apologize that that was totally out of line. And then he left my office and then come came back 10 minutes later and he's like, "Dude, that was the best conversation <laughs> I've had with a boss ever." Wow. <laughs> and I was like, "That's great. That's awesome." And, and so then I I I taught him the technique. Yeah. Well, you know what? And as you were saying that, so right when you said like about the behavior at the beginning, I was writing down here, uh, setting common ground. So when you have somebody or an issue that you want to confront with somebody, I think you really have to start at common ground because I've had arguments with people where it's like, you can tell, like, I'm talking about this one thing way over here. And you're saying things that have like, in my mind, nothing to do with what we're talking about. So Clearly, it's like we're just arguing for no reason. We're arguing two separate points on, you know, separate sides of whatever. But when you come at it with like, "Hey, this is what you sent this," or "You said this," it lets that other person know, "Okay, this is what they believe." Maybe right at the out- uh, onset, you don't even have to get to the other two steps because they go, "Actually, you misunderstood that, or it was intended this way." Especially like an email, right? There's no tone. There's no uh, uh, inflection in there. So it's just words on paper. Yep. So you're like, did they really mean to send this? Like, what? what's the purpose? Yep. You could almost end the issue right on the first step. Yep. If you're like, 
uh, we're actually, you know, not talking about the same thing. If it is the same thing, though, then you can start from that common ground. Because if you're not starting with like some uh, foundation of what you're even talking about, there's no agreement on like the facts that we have to discuss. Yep. And you really can't go anywhere with that. So I thought that was uh, a very interesting point. One of the things, um, when you talk about like the type of boss that you are, and I've been thinking about this lots and then just through a lot of the podcast guests that I've had, like people in really incredible leadership positions and, and doing the true leadership aspect of it is almost like your reputation precedes you in that, you know, you're, you had that great interaction with that one person there and they come back and give you that immediate feedback, but maybe they go out now or another person comes to the team actually probably be a better example, but another person comes to the team. And if that new person has an issue with you for whatever it might be, you now kind of have like that ally on your side who can say, I don't know, man, like that guy, like he's pretty fair <laughs> and he like helps out and, um, you know, so it's it's like setting those early expectations and you being a consistent leader uh, with your kind of your character. Um, I think the consistency really helps people. So I don't know what your thoughts are. Yeah, 100%. And you know what? You're bringing up such a, an interesting point, uh, which is when you're doing leadership right, there's... Um, I, I, the term doesn't come up to mind right now, but it's just that effect, that lingering effect of leadership. Yeah. You know, you're not even there anymore. Let's say you're, you're out on vacation, right? But your staff know you as a person that's very, whatever, let's say. It's your reputation. You've got a very strong reputation at, let's say, not tolerating people that are late. Let's say. Yeah. It doesn't matter if you're there or not there. At some point, when you do it right and you, you do it often enough, sometimes you can be gone for two weeks on a project, on whatever, you're gone, but everybody knows, like, hey, you can't show up late. Because, mm -hmm. you know, because if the boss was here, you'd be like, and, and, and so, and I'm, I, I don't want to just talk negatively, but also on a positive side, like, it's just if, if you have a reputation of celebrating successes, right? really recognizing when somebody does a great job and, and celebrating that success, well, even if you're not there, you're gone on vacation, you come back from vacation, you're, you've got a whole bunch of emails from employees saying, hey, by the way, Nathan was awesome. He arrested this guy who was doing blah, blah, blah. And so the culture remains. And so there's kind of this stickiness to your leadership that yeah. when you're doing it right, and you're you're really influencing the people around you. At some point, you're not even there anymore, and it's that effect still lingers with your crew. That is something that we um, we used to do in policing. Like when I first got to the Edmonton Police of 2013, first few years, you would see people would send uh, attaboy emails, and it was just you could show up to a call, and you just kind of went a little bit above and beyond. You did. You know, maybe it was the end of your shift and you're just like, whatever, I'll work right to the minute. Like, and I'll stay out. It's not a big deal. Um, or you just did one of the kind of the crappier tasks in, in the investigation that nobody else wants to do. Uh, but you did it without kind of complaining. And someone, you know, the sergeant on the other squad or even just one of your peers, one of your uh, other constables 
they would send an email to your boss and say like, hey, I just want like you to know this person did this awesome job and they didn't have to. But that's showing real leadership. And that has definitely gone away. I mean, especially now with just a lot of the different narratives and all the things that policing has gone through. Uh, that is uh, almost non-existent. Like I, I've seen or heard of it like once every, I don't know, six months you hear somebody getting something. Yep. And not that it has to be overkill. It doesn't have to be every single task you ever do, but nope. you know, just once in a while, letting people know, hey, you did a good job and you didn't have to. Uh, that goes a long, long way for their morale and, and them then going like, you know, the, a simple email, maybe that energizes a person for like two or three months. Yep. And they kind of still in their head and they're like, hey, I'm working harder. I'm doing all these things. When it starts getting six months and a year out, nobody's ever recognized you for anything. You might not even be asking for it, but when you get it, you're like, oh yeah, like, yeah, that feels good. Right. Yep. A hundred percent. And my philosophy on celebrating successes is I think you need to do both. I need, I think, let's say, for example, I'm your supervisor and you've done a really great job on a, on a specific file. I think I need to do two things to really make this stick. One, one thing I need to go see you face to face, not an email. You go shake your hand and go, Nathan, yeah, man, that was awesome. That was a great job. The way you wrote that file up was phenomenal. The, you know, the initiatives you showed and to give actual praise, not a keep doing what you're doing. You know, that sucks. Yeah. Like <laughs> what kind of feedback is that? It's not genuine. No, not at all. So you need to give genuine feedback and say, Hey, you know, that specific thing you did right there, that was great leadership or that was great initiative or that was super creative and blah, blah, blah recognize the person face to face then you need to recognize the person publicly mm -hmm. i think that goes a long way because not only does it feel good for nathan if i send an email you know an attaboy to you and let's say your team and and, and your supervisor or you know the another person supervising on your team whatever um that and i say hey nathan Guys, I just want to highlight Nathan's really great work on this file, blah, blah. Not only does it feel good to you, but it also shows everybody else <clears throat> the kind of attitude that we're looking. You're setting a culture. You're creating something. So there's these two elements. The, the, the kind of double-sided blade of this thing yeah. is that... When you're a leader, you have to be very, very conscious of what you celebrate. And that's a lesson I had to learn. Because in, in my early days managing the team I'm managing now, my team was, when I arrived, the team was very hands-off. And we weren't, like, the, the crew was doing very little arresting and, and so on and so forth. And I'm like, okay, that's over. From this point forward, if somebody's committing an offense mm -hmm. in our backyard, we're doing something about it. We're going to arrest and and so on and so forth, right? I like, yeah, we were taking the gloves off a little bit, you know, setting those expectations, yeah, and setting expectations and setting rules of engagement and so on. Um, but then I started 
like every time somebody was arresting someone, I'd celebrate it. Mm. What did I create? I created a culture where arrest good, not arrest bad. And, <laughs> and, 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 yeah. and so, so, so I realized, holy crap, I need to kind of backpedal here a little bit because I needed to make people realize, guys, not arresting, resolving a situation without arresting is also good, right? Having a conversation with that person and maybe convincing them to don't do that again and leave and don't come back and, and whatever. Like you don't have to slap cuffs every time. Um, because the anyways, the the police, the local police force just doesn't have the capacity to pick up everybody that we're arresting. But at the end of the day, uh, when you're in a leadership position, you have to consider these things. You have to consider, okay, I, I need to be careful how I yeah. do those attaboys, right? Because I, if I'm always rewarding the one thing, then you're creating this culture of that one thing. Yeah, you don't want to create a, a monster on either end of the spectrum. Ones who exactly. do absolutely nothing and are just, you know, could be slugs. And then on the other end where it's like the most hard line, you know, kind of militant. <laughs> it's like, you took $2, I'm arresting you. <laughs> it's like, okay. Exactly. Could, could we have shuffled that person off and just panned them? Like, you know, um, we're just kind of coming up to the end of our time. There's a lot of stuff I didn't get to that, um, man, I'll have to have you on again. No problems, uh, but we went a little longer on the security stuff because uh, I was I really interested in in some of that, and um, but we didn't even get into like I wanted to talk about uh, leadership. Is it more inborn or is it instilled in people? Can you learn that type of stuff? Um, talking about manipulation, yeah. oh yeah, good or bad on yeah. people and stuff. So um, yeah, I think I'll have to save a couple couple topics for the next time. Um, uh, but I want to make sure you get a chance to just say how people can follow you, find you, and and all of your work. So where's where can they kind of connect with you? Yeah, thanks, Nathan. That's that's awesome. Um, uh, I'm def definitely uh, good for a part two if you want to. Yeah. But uh, um, uh, yeah, if look to to anybody listening or watching this, uh, if this resonated with you, right? If you're looking to get those skill sets because you want to get promoted, for example, it makes total sense, right? To invest in yourself and, and really get yourself to the next level. Um, I'd be happy to chat with you. So you can reach me on my web, directly on my website at uh, teamup.ca. So it's team-up.ca. Just go on there, hit the button for a free 30-minute coaching session, and I'll literally help you solve those problems right there on the spot. And then we can map out together right there in that free session, the exact steps you're going to need to take to, to go from where you're at in your career now to where you want to be making more money, having less stress, all that fun stuff. So just book a free coaching session. It'll be my pleasure to spend some time with you and, and help you out. Awesome. And are you on, uh, well, you're on LinkedIn. That's where I found you. I am on LinkedIn. <laughs> so yeah, of course, if, if you want to, uh, yeah, if you want to see some content every, uh, every week I post a video on LinkedIn. Um, I always give some, some, some good leadership tips. Uh, a lot of the times it's stuff that I've learned myself. Like as, as I'm growing as a leader, I'll realize something and go, Hmm, 
I think other people could use this as well. And I just yeah. put it in a video and put it out on LinkedIn. So just follow me on LinkedIn as well. Um, it's uh, it, and, and you can reach out to me on LinkedIn as well. It'd be my pleasure to chat with you. Um, and uh, yeah, the uh, uh, again, the website teamup.ca. Awesome. Well, I'll put all that up in the episode description when we get it up. Uh, and I'll remind people um, for both uh, he and myself uh, with the quiet professional, make sure you share, like, comment, uh, spread the word, spread the message. Because um, I think we're getting some good content out there and we're, we're really trying to help people. Um, so yeah, uh, say thank you for coming on and hang on the line for two seconds. Thank you.